It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome into the virtual bible study we're glad you're a part of it tonight this is the virtual bible study for august 6 2009 we welcome you to the program tonight we're glad you're with us my name is jacob Gwynn. my father greg Gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you tonight it's good to be with you, and we've got somebody sitting between the two of us tonight. Yeah, maybe we got a we got a fight mediator here in case we break out into a fight. He can oh. he can put a stop to it. Or that, or he'll prompt a fight between the both of us here. <laughs> uh, Nick Law is with us from Jennings, Florida. Nick, welcome to the program tonight. Thank you. Good being with you. It's good to be with you. And uh, we uh, we were this is our first guest in the new studio arrangement. So. Hopefully the seat won't fall in on you there and uh, you'll be okay, but uh, we think it looks okay. We uh, want to talk tonight about uh, a collection of questions that we've gotten over the past few weeks. Every once in a while, Jacob, we do this. We have a program where we just take random questions that come in. Of course, that's one of the things we say. If you've got a subject that you'd like us to discuss, send us a message and we'll try to work it into the mix. We'll try to talk about it. And so we've collected a Four specific questions, and they're not really related to one another, Jacob, but we collected four specific statements, and we're going to talk about them on the program tonight. Earlier today, as I always do on Thursday, sent out a, an update to our mailing list telling you what those questions were and giving you an idea of what our topic for discussion was going to be tonight, um, and then also asking for your feedback. And we've got some feedback. We want to get some more. Uh, send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. Or pick up the phone and call us, but to our update list, and if you want on that list, send us a message and tell us that too. But the questions we sent out today were four. The first one's kind of unique, It's and this is a quote from the email we received. My family and I like to take vacations each year. Every year we try to take, we try to take in a theme park to enjoy the rides and shows. I've been contemplating this question for a while. The shows that we attend while we rest from the rides are full of music and dance. In your opinion from the scriptures, is it wrong to attend these shows? While you're on this topic, does watching shows on TV that are full of music and dance fall in the same category? That's an interesting question, I think. Hang hang on to that. I want to real quickly. The others are not as long. Let me get questions two, three, and four. We're going to talk about this first one that we just read, and then we're going to go to this one. Uh, uh, A listener emailed, I think a good topic would be one cup and one loaf in the Lord's Supper. Okay. And then number three, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it tolerated? Is homosexuality a cultural or scriptural issue? How do I, how do some Christians try to justify homosexuality in or by the Bible? We've talked about that before on our program, but we'll, we'll give a quick overview on that because that's always in the news, unfortunately. And then number four, don't the events in Acts 20, verses 6 through 11, prove that social gatherings and common meals were a regular part of the activities of first century churches? So uh, that's that's the way we're going to go. We're going to go at them in that order. We're accepting answers, and we're also accepting questions tonight. So you can answer those four questions, or 
You can send in your own question. We'll be glad to talk about and, it. And we might not get to your question tonight because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But, but we'll, we'll play s- Stump Nick tonight, so send in your hard questions. Yeah, and, we're uh, going to we, pass all the hard questions to Nick. All right. Well, we want to hear from you at 877-381-4567. Send your emails to questions at collegeu.com or join in the discussion with other listeners in the chat room tonight. If you're watching us, our stream at ustream.tv, follow the instructions at the bottom of your screen to join in the chat room. Anthony is there. Jared is there. And we have an avid explorer there. We don't know who that is, but we're glad that you're out there. So we want to hear from you tonight on the program as we talk about various questions. So anything is fair game, any Bible subject, any Bible question is fair game tonight. We want to hear from you. All right, what about the question of going to an amusement park and watching a show where it oh, is. Oh, you see who Avid Explorer is. That's our friend Jack from oh, Georgia. Good to have Jack in Jack, the Jack, glad to hear you out there. All right. And uh, let's talk about the question. What about going to the shows at the amusement park where there is uh, music and dance involved? Uh, would that be something that a Christian should avoid? Well, we've got a couple of emailers that I think will start us out in the right direction and, uh, and uh, get the discussion started. Uh, our good friend Randy in Jackson, Missouri, writes in, As long as the music and dance is not lewd, suggestive, or otherwise sinful, I would see no problem with it. Most dancing done at theme parks is akin to gymnastics or athletic activity rather than lewd dancing. Well, I think the last part of his statement is probably a judgment, his judgment on that. But I would agree with the first part of his statement that not all dancing per se is necessarily sinful. And I think we can find in the Bible examples of people dancing and it wasn't condemned. Uh, in the Old Testament, I wrote down some notes from some Old Testament examples, uh, Exodus 15, verse 20, 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, Judges 11, verse 34. All of those were, were indicating dancing done by way of rejoicing. And there, Jesus even made a reference to that sort of dancing when he told the, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verse 25. There was dancing and music at the return of the prodigal to his father's house. I don't think Jesus would have mentioned that if, or would have included it in the parable if it was a sinful kind of dancing that he was alluding to there. So so just because you hear the word dancing, uh, we, it, we you're saying we can't make a blanket condemnation. Yeah, a, couple, a few more references from the Old Testament uh, dances that indicated praise. Psalm 149, 3, 150, verse 4, 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 16, Judges 21, 19 through 23. Several references to dancing that I, I would argue probably are not suggesting sinful dancing. Now, the Bible plainly does mention sinful dancing, and maybe one of the most, a couple of, of remembered episodes. One was in Exodus 32 when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law. And as he and Joshua were coming down from the mountain, they heard the sound of, of noise in the camp. And Joshua said, there's a battle. No, Moses said, it's not a battle. And they came down there, and the people were dancing lewdly in, in conjunction with worshiping the golden calf. And then in Matthew 14, verse 6, Herodias' daughter danced lewdly before Herod. Uh, in or, and and the, the end result of that was the beheading of John the Baptist. So I think what we'd say is clearly there is sinful dancing, and the Bible speaks of sinful dancing. But I think Randy's statement is probably true that you couldn't say Everything that might be referred to as dancing is necessarily sinful. Uh, usually when we talk about dancing, though, we're talking about modern dancing, dancing which does suggest lewdness, and it is condemned in Scripture. Jack says clogging, et cetera, could be safe. 
So he agrees that not all dancing would be sinful, but then he also adds, uh, but it is all for entertainment. So we have to ask ourselves if we need to be watching anything like that. Again, it is a judgment call. I think what he's saying there, it's entertainment, so it's not necessary. You don't have to watch this to live. So if there's a question about it, don't do it. Uh, be safe. Yeah. Nick, you have any comments? Uh, yeah, I would agree. If you have any any doubt whatsoever, you shouldn't practice any anything that you might view as uh, contrary to the scriptures. But uh, as I think about the uh, idea of dancing that we do see today, anytime it would fit the definitions of uh, lasciviousness, lewdness, as Greg has said, I, I believe those would be condemned in the scripture, and the Christian shouldn't participate in that, or should they use that as their entertainment? Exactly right, and and we we've. Need, I think everybody needs, Nick, to have a good working understanding of the word lasciviousness. That's a Bible word that we don't use in normal conversation, but it is plainly condemned in the Scriptures. It is one of the works of the flesh uh, mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, verses 19 through uh, 21. Uh, lasciviousness, uh, by definition, is that which produces lewd emotions, lust and lewd emotions in the heart. And much of dancing is in that category. Well, so I, I, our point is, we, we we agree that you just can't make a blanket condemnation. So if it's if it's called dancing, it's automatically and necessarily wrong. But dancing, what people mean today when they talk about dancing, is generally condemned by by the word lasciviousness. All right. Let me let me read a quote, uh, an email, real quick, Jacob from Anthony, uh, here in Columbia. He says, uh, "Let me get to this." I would point out that dancing is not specifically by name condemned in the Bible. What is condemned is lasciviousness, and I believe this would rule out most forms of modern dancing, which is so utterly vulgar and suggestive. But I do not believe this condemnation of lasciviousness would rule out all dancing. What about period dancing, formal dances from Elizabethan times when men and women hardly touched at all, tap dancing, square dancing? I don't know much about this, but I imagine it could become lascivious. What I'm getting at is that as Christians, we have to be very careful that we do not just memorize a list of things that we don't do swimming dancing drinking we must understand the underlying scriptural reasons why we don't do certain things just as all forms of swimming are not sinful though some unlearned brethren may think so i'm not convinced all forms of dancing are sinful as for watching dancing performances or things on tv if the dancing is in any way suggestive or features men and women touching each other in very close quarters i don't think we should be deriving entertainment from it for example, no Christian has any business watching Dancing with the Stars. This show is practically pornographic. Okay. Uh, I, I think I, I would agree. And and the point that Anthony's making there is is a, a, a reasonable one. We have to understand, the, as he said, we shouldn't just say it's wrong. I've always, I was always told it's wrong, therefore it's wrong. We need to understand why it's wrong and what we're condemning when we say it's wrong. And what elements of it we're condemning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jared in the chat room says, I think we need to be asking ourselves two things about our entertainment. Number one, is it lawful or sinful? And number two, will it edify me? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he references, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And again, it's, it's not necessary to be entertained and... Yet many people in our society think it is necessary to be entertained. And so a lot of people are compromising with what they view. Maybe it's the dancing. Uh, maybe it is the the movies that they choose to watch. Uh, they're compromising because they have this uh, thing, this idea that they have to be entertained. And uh, it's not a requirement. And if there's a question, we need to, we need to abstain. You know, sometimes we almost 
we we get into a situation and we don't even think about it. You know, we don't even think that, well, I, maybe that sh- I shouldn't be doing that. And I think that's what our emailer is suggesting. You know, that his family has been doing this with some regularity, but suddenly he's thinking, is it is it really appropriate? That's, a, been, that's an admiral. And I've been there. I, I think we probably have all been in that situation where he said, well, wait a minute. Let's think about that again and make sure that that's what we should be doing. We need to we need to do that with everything that we do. Ask yeah. the question. Is the, Don't just assume. We need to ask the question. So that's Jacob, very good. We were saying that the, the, key, the, the key to the question of dancing is this word lasciviousness, I think. And let me give you a couple definitions. Vine says – that lasciviousness, quote, denotes excess, licentiousness, absence of restraint, indecency, wantonness, shameless outrages on public decency. Pretty strong statement. But the one that I've always felt really nails it down is what Thayer says, Nick. He says, lasciviousness is wanton acts or manners as filthy words, indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females, and that almost exactly describes modern dancing. That's correct. Uh, I know the definition of that is what I've always been taught. And as we think about the effect that it would have upon, as our brother has questioned that, uh, what kind of uh, effect will it have upon our children's minds as well as we see them uh, involved uh, in watching these type programs that have been suggested yeah, or lewd. Right, Virginia. and we wouldn't want to do anything that would lower their resistance to this temptation. In other words, if if they're maybe as a, a mature adult, you might be able to distinguish between forms of dance. Maybe a child doesn't make that distinction, and so they see this, and you seem to be enjoying watching this. And then, then as they grow older, comes time for them maybe be tempted to go to a school dance or a prom or something. They say, well. You you always like to go watch the dances, Dad. When we went to the amusement park, you always enjoyed watching the dances. So, as I say, we we might be able to distinguish, but maybe in their immature mind, they're not able to distinguish, and we might be harming their resistance toward temptation later on. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. We do appreciate the question. Again, it, it is along the lines of what we read in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We've got to prove all things so that we can we can't hold fast to that which is uh, good. Yeah, I, I would I would argue, Jacob, that even in those kind of entertainment shows that that our emailer was mentioning, either on TV or at an amusement park or something like that, uh, an honest evaluation of those things would probably. I mean, if if we were really sub, very very objectively analyzing what's going on, there there. There is uh, an element to that that we probably shouldn't be participating in. Well, the dress probably for one. Uh, is well, very, and the bodily movements. That's true. That's true. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back on the other side, we have another question we want to get into, one we've never talked about on the virtual Bible study. Should we be using one loaf and one cup in the Lord's Totally Supper? unrelated to our first question, but an important it's question. It's random tonight. Yeah. And so we'll take your random question or comment, send them in during the break, you have anything on your mind, anything you've been studying lately, you have a question about, send it in, and we'd like to hear from you. We're going to take a break and be back right on the other side. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. There's an ever-increasing trend toward churches sponsoring recreational and entertainment activities for their members. It's not hard to remember a time when parties, games, suppers, and the like were not to be found among churches of Christ. Today, they are becoming the rule rather than the exception. 
please understand that we have nothing against good food and socializing among brethren. Really, such should be encouraged, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Our objection is to the church's involvement in sponsoring such activities. In the only New Testament example of a similar activity, you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 34. The responsible parties were openly rebuked and instructed to keep these things in the realm of individual action and not involve the church. Notice especially verse 34 in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. We have heard a good number of folks quibble that the church is not involved so long as no money is spent from the treasury. For instance, a softball team is formed by several Christians. They buy their own equipment, pay their own fees, etc., but they call themselves the so-and-so Church of Christ team. Their games are announced and endorsed by the local congregation. We submit that the church is involved, even if funds have not been expended from the treasury. The use of the church's name and the open endorsement of the activity amounts to direct involvement, which is unscriptural and should be abolished. There is simply no authority for churches to be involved in sponsoring, supporting, endorsing, or otherwise participating in recreational and entertainment activities. These matters can and should be pursued by individuals, and the church should continue to address the important spiritual business at hand. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Zach Coleman, and when I'm listening to the virtual Bible study, I love to hear comments from other listeners. So please join in tonight's discussion by sending an email or by making a phone call. The address is questions at collegeview.com, and the phone number is toll-free, 877-381-4567. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We're taking various questions on the program tonight. So send your question in or send your answers in as we discuss our listeners' questions. We'd love to hear from you. You could help us answer these important questions. The next one is one that uh, is somewhat rare, but uh, there are some who believe that we should be using one cup and one loaf during the Lord's Supper. What do you think about that? Should we be using one loaf, one cup? Well, some people say we should. I mean, and there's been some division uh, on that question among Christians as to whether it's appropriate to use multiple drinking containers when we observe the Lord's Supper or whether we all should be drinking from the same vessel. Uh, let me let me read a text that that is used to argue this. Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, beginning verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, the argument there is that he, he gave them to drink all from one cup. And that that's what we ought to be doing, that we ought to imitate that example, that we all should drink from one drinking vessel. Uh, you, you can read also in Mark, Mark chapter 14, beginning verse 22. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Uh, and so the, the argument is that, it, that they used one cup. One cup. Now, in, in answering that question, I think it's necessary for us to understand a figure of speech, and a lot of us weren't really great in English back in school days, but the figure of speech our English teachers would tell us is metonymy. And a definition from the dictionary for metonymy is the use of the name of one thing for that of another to which it has some logical relation as scepter or sovereignty of a king or the bottle 
for strong drink. In other words, if I said, if I told you somebody he's hitting the bottle, Jacob, you'd understand that I mean he's drinking the content. He's a he's a drunk. He's an alcoholic. Um, we use examples like this. Uh, bring a covered dish to the potluck supper. Well, does that mean you're supposed to bring a dish, Nick? If you come just with a dish, Nick, we're going to send you back home to get what's supposed to be in it. Well, he might have eaten it on the way. <laughs> but, but that's metonymy, and that's and that's the figure of speech that's being used there in those verses where it says Jesus took the cup. Well, let's look at that again because in verse 27 it says he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament. Was he talking about the actual drinking vessel? Were they to drink the – because that's what the language here, if you take it literally, means – he he would have said, drink you all of it. Drink you all of what? Of the cup. How do you drink a cup? You don't. You drink what's in the cup. And so the cup is referencing. Well, well there he also said, in. and when he said, he, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. He was talking about what was in the cup, not the cup itself. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Next, Nick, what's your thought? I, I think of 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, where Paul is writing from one place and writing brethren at another place. And he uses the term singular cup. And he says, the cup of blessings which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And so if we just think about Paul being uh, at another place writing this letter to the Corinthians, and yet he's using the singular use of cup here, uh, saying uh, they would have theirs at, at uh, Corinth, and he would have wherever he's meeting with brethren uh, at the other place. And, and that should show us clearly that he's talking about something of a kind, and it's not just one container. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I think you're exactly right, Nick. And and we we use that kind of language all the time. I, I had another example written down here. We brought we bought a two liter, and we all drank some of it. If if I said that to you, what would you think I was talking about? Did we some somehow melt down the plastic two liter bottle and 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 drink the plastic molten plastic? No, you'd know I meant we drank what was in the two liter bottle. Okay. Uh, and then and then real quickly also. If you look at Luke's account, I think Luke's account of Jesus uh, uh, establishing the Lord's Supper actually implies that they divided it up into their own drinking vessels before they partook of it. Uh, History would tell us that at a Passover meal, each person at the meal at the table would have his own drinking vessel. And in Luke 22, beginning verse 17, it says, He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Uh, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God shall come. So, you know, the, the, the argument there is that it seems he told them specifically that he handed it out and they put some in their own drinking vessels before uh, they partook of it. Uh, I, I think that makes a pretty good argument. There's some other arguments offered into the practical impossibility of New Testament churches always drinking from one vessel. Now, I've been in assemblies. I have myself been in an assembly where we all drank from one vessel. Uh, It's not my preference, but uh, I've done it before. But you think about the church at Jerusalem. Church at Jerusalem had over 3,000 members on the very first day that it began. It it, it numbered in the 10,000-plus number within just a short order of time. How could that many people drink from one vessel? Well, you'd have to have a horse trough, Nick, if everybody's going to drink out of it. That's correct. In the Old Testament, in some of the studies I've done in the past uh, from the Septuagint version, I believe the same, you know, when the Israelites were looking for the bread coming from heaven called manna, uh, it's written and it's uh, specified in the singular. And I've often thought about, you know, here's one 
one kind of a substance coming, but it didn't necessarily mean it was in one piece. Can you imagine uh, manna coming to feed that many people and falling in one lump sum? Everybody everybody would be looking for shelter, I suppose, when they heard the manna was raining down. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. If you'd like to comment on this, if you'd like to send in another question, we have another question that's come in from the chat room. We'll get it to, I think, later on in the program, but um, uh, we'd like to hear the, from the, you. The other part of that question we're dealing with, what about one loaf? I mean, in other words, uh, uh, and some people take that position, and I, I would confess that there was a time when I thought maybe that should be that way too. We should have one loaf, a prayer should be said for it, and then it should be broken and distributed but the same argument about the church at Jerusalem would argue against one loaf. How how could 3,000 to 10,000 people all have a part of one loaf? It, it would be a practical impossibility. When the scripture says that he blessed it and break it, that's we think he blessed it and then he broke it up. That's not what it that's not what that word means. It it means he blessed it and he distributed it. It doesn't mean that he physically tore it in pieces necessarily. The word break there means literally to distribute. He blessed it and he distributed it among them. So I would argue that one loaf is not a necessity either to that question. We got some emails on this. Uh, uh, let's see here. Anthony says, uh, all I have to say about this is if one cup and one loaf, then why not an upper room? Was Jesus concerned about how many pieces of bread or cups there were or was he focused on the bread and the fruit of the vine? Clearly the latter. Nonetheless, I would like to hear more discussion on this. Randy has written in and said, um, I know of some people, I know some people insist that the communion element should come from one loaf and one cup. I see no specific instruction in the scripture for that practice. In fact, we are given much liberty in how to observe the Lord's Supper. We are only told to do it often and in a worthy manner. The definition of worthy manner is not given except that we are to examine ourselves to discern, determine if we are worthy. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with the, with the last part of Randy's statement there. I think worthy manner is described there in 1 Corinthians 11, Nick, as doing it in remembrance of Jesus. We do it worthily. We're not we're not personally worthy. We're not we're not worthy individuals. But we're to put the 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 word is worthily partake of it worthily, and that's described as doing it in remembrance of Jesus. We might say in an acceptable manner, making sure that we have our mind on what we're doing and and for the right reason. I think that's exactly right. And, For, go ahead. Brandon. And I was going to say again in First Corinthians 16 or 10:16, where we mentioned the the cup a moment or the cup of blessing. It also mentions the bread, which we break there. So here again, if it was here, he's using it in the singular. The Greek is in the singular, and so Paul is at one place there at another place, and yet he's using it. And, and most every time we see. Uh, it doesn't even mention the unleavened bread, but we we come to that conclusion because we know that's the only kind of bread the Lord would have in a house as he would prepare for uh, partaking of the Passover. Yeah, that's right. It never says unleavened bread anywhere in the New Testament. But we know, as Nick said, we know it would have been. Yeah. When, on, that, on, on that occasion when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was during the Passover week. Therefore, uh, a faithful Jew, which Jesus was, would not have had any leavening agents even in their house, much less in what they were eating. So we know that he used unleavened bread. Jack in the chat room says, why are people afraid of taking more than a crumb of the loaf? I'm amazed how little bread that actually goes into the mouth. Just a thought. I don't know. But and it doesn't, yeah, but again, no amount is specified. So yeah, uh, there's no, there really no. And, and it, it, what we're talking about that, the, the, the fruit of the vine and the bread are representative of Jesus. It, 
blood and body, and, and they're, they're intended to help us remember. It's a memorial feast. It's for remembering what Jesus did. They, I, I knew, I knew of, uh, of a church where that whatever bread was left, one place I knew of that there was a signed person to eat all that was left over so, so there weren't any crumbs left. Another place, if you can believe this, I knew of a place where they actually had a shovel and the men took the, the remaining bread out in the yard and buried it if there was any crumbs left over. And, and that almost, to me, goes to the point of what the Catholics believe in trans, transubstantiation, that, that, that it literally becomes blood and flesh of Jesus. It's a, it, it's, it's a representative of those things to cause us to remember those things, but it doesn't physically become those things. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. Are we finished with that question? We we probably should move on. We're not going to get done. All right. We'll take a break and come back on the other side. When we get back, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it tolerated? Is homosexuality a crucial or a cultural or a scriptural issue? How do some Christians try to justify homosexuality in the Bible? We hope you'll join in on that discussion and send in your own. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hi, this is Jordan Sanders from College View Church of Christ, and here's some thoughts for you today. Have you ever wondered why there never seems to be enough time to get everything done? Well, we may not have the answer. According to an article in U.S. News, an average American in his lifetime will spend six months at a stop sign, eight months opening junk mail, one year looking for misplaced items, two years unsuccessfully trying to return telephone calls, five years waiting in the line, and six years eating. Other recent studies suggest that we will spend as much as 20 years watching TV and even more time sleeping. Now, to put this this in proper perspective, think of this. If you attend every service of church, Sunday Bible study, Sunday morning and evening worship, and Wednesday night Bible study, you will spend only about 1.5 years total. That's only slightly more time than you will spend looking for misplaced items and only about twice as much time as you will spend opening junk mail. But some Christians will not even do this much. Over and over again, we return to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. God commands us to assemble. Why? The context of this verse clearly shows that it is for our benefit. Are you taking advantage of this great blessing? Christian, how are you using your time? If you don't regularly attend all of the services, you may be spending more time opening junk mail than worshiping God. Isn't that a terrifying thought? I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program too. Gracias. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The Virtual Bible Study continues. And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad you're a part of the program. And I think we have, we just heard from Nestor there who listens to the Virtual Bible Study in Chile. And I believe he's online with us tonight. We've got, a, we've got an email. Just got an email from Nestor. We're going to go to some of his comments here we're, in a minute. We're worldwide tonight, and we're glad you're a part of the program. Before before we pass from the one cup, one loaf question, Jacob, I got an email from Keith in uh, Lynchburg and uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee. And he says, I have I've had discussions with two men that make the argument for us to go back to the Bible, doing on what the Bible says on the subject. They make the argument that only one cup and one loaf were used in the Lord's Supper. They agree on this subject to a point. Then they disagree on whether you break the loaf before serving or serve it whole. In other words, they don't agree between themselves. They quote Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, where it does make the case one cup and one loaf were used. They also use 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17, 11, 24 through 26. 
According to my study, all churches were one cup, one loaf before 1906. My mother even said that where she went, they used one cup in 1932, but now this church uses several cups. I've often wondered about this subject, but haven't made a conclusion. Well, what churches did by matter of of expediency, Nick, would not necessarily prove what is the law of God. I, I would acknowledge that multiple containers is is probably a, a fairly recent uh, change. Probably you could have years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, you probably could have found more churches using one cup. We have more convenience. The question is not what they did, but what is instructed in Scripture. Yeah, I believe, I believe the Scriptures are... You know, Jesus said to those uh, in John eight thirty one. he says, if you continue in my word, and of course, that's what people are, I believe, uh, genuinely trying to do as they come to these questions. Yeah. But I believe the, the scriptures are, are plain. And, and of course, we don't know every congregation that's ever existed since the Lord's church was established, nor exactly what they practice. So sometimes when we make those statements, we're talking about things that that we really don't know what every congregation did. Yeah. But I believe it's clear that, you know, we can know the truth. We can know whether it, uh, it's right to have multiple containers as we study the passages that we're looking at even now. Yeah. And I would argue that maybe maybe the congregation that his mother knew about 1932 used one vessel. But I could I, I'm arguing 2000 years ago, the church in Jerusalem couldn't have used one vessel. So that that. The the point that you can point to, to to some churches in in the recent past that use one vessel, I've been at such churches. I've participated in such worship. That's a that's a that's a a judgment call. That's an expediency matter. But we as we pointed out, you go back to the Church of Jerusalem. They could not possibly have all drank from one vessel. So uh, you know, I think that argument has to, again back to the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think Luke's account actually indicates they used multiple containers on the very day that Jesus. Uh, institute the Lord's Supper. Take it for what it's worth, but I believe that's what that passage is teaching. All right. We appreciate everyone for your comments on that topic. Let's go on to the next one, which really shouldn't be a, much of a question, but our society makes it one. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it tolerated? Is homosexuality a cultural or a scriptural issue? How do some Christians try to justify homosexuality in the Bible? Nick, Jacob, we, before you go to, the, to Nick on this, uh, let me tell you the the question came from a listener in Cookville, Tennessee, Jonathan, and he says, given the current situation in the news, I thought it might be a good time to discuss homosexuality on the virtual Bible study. If you keep up with sports news, you may have seen that the Hawaii football coach is in trouble for making some homosexual slurs during a speech. I was watching ESPN the other night, and they were interviewing a man who was a homosexual and getting his comments on the situation. When asked specifically about the coach, the man stated that because he was a Christian, it was not his place to judge the coach and so forth and so on. I saw a little bit of that, not on ESPN, but I I did see part of an interview where this football coach from Hawaii was making a tearful apology for having said some things about homosexuals. Of course, that's where our society has gotten to. You can't say anything about it. Remember, Jacob, not long ago we had a program where we interviewed a guy who who is tracking legislation through the legislature in Washington where they're going to make it hate speech if you say anything. If you even read the Bible verses that discuss homosexuality, you're going to be guilty of a hate crime. Uh, it, is, it is a problem. Now, we're not defending the slurs and we're not defending the jokes, uh, right. but we are going to defend what the Bible tells tells us about the subject. Nick, we'll let you start. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Is it something that uh, God tolerates? Well, it certainly 
verses that we see even people who are homosexuals, they'll go to the Old Testament and read Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So they see clearly that God has spoken against it under the old law. Uh, of course, we have the New Testament where we see in 1 Corinthians 6 that uh, there were people at Corinth who were homosexuals, and Paul says such were some of you. But they had been washed, they had been cleansed, and they're put into a list again with those who are violators of God's law. And, of course, uh, arguments that I've heard people make, they will go to passages in the Old Testament, such as uh, Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel 18, and uh, it states there in that verse that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And they will use that, I guess, with a modern-day use of the term love, and as though that would uh, say that they had some sort of sexual uh, relationship. And yet, I love my father, but... Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, I have any uh, homosexual tendencies toward him. So it's just how people are uh, using language, and uh, they're not uh, using it in in really a proper sense and making application as though God's Word is saying that. In the chat room tonight, we have a listener who sent in Romans chapter 1. He says it's a good scripture against homosexuality. It certainly is, uh, and a familiar passage, Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and received in themselves the, that recompense of their error which was meet. And so uh, we could look at other scriptures as well that uh, would condemn the act of homosexuality. Our good friend and brother Nestor in Arica, Chile in South America has written in, and he says the, the homosexuality is in the category of sin, it is not tolerable to God. It is practiced by the unrighteous. Homosexuality is unjustified in any case in the Bible. And then he lists some texts that show us what God thinks and says about this sinful practice. And you all have already mentioned some of these. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, Genesis chapter uh, 19, verses 4 and 5, talking about Lot in the city of Sodom uh, and the terrible sinfulness there, Genesis 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. First uh, Corinthians 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. He goes on to say, Marriage is composed for one man and one woman, and this is the plan of God. Other form of marriage is not recognized by the author of the marriage. Other arrangement is unknown to God. The plan of God about the sexual relation satisfies two needs of the human world to satisfy the carnal wish that God put in us and, to, and the correct way to multiply us. The human plan does not fulfill, uh, the human plan, I think, talking about homosexuality, does not fulfill the needs uh, in any way. The people that practice homosexuality always are unhappy. Many people are doing a different sexual plan, and the society is a big part in accepting it. Many rulers of the countries are doing are making human laws to approve the marriage between men and women or women with women, excuse me, men with men or women with women. But we must remember that God is superior to the man, and for this reason, God's law is superior to man's law. God is the first, is first, uh, I'm not sure how that goes, God is first that to men, so that God's law is the first over the law of men. The law of God and the, nat, uh, and the natural law say that homosexuality in any form of it is, is, is a sin, Every people that practice this sin won't enter into the kingdom of God. 
if there is not sincere repentance from this from the heart that people must abandon any kind of sin if he if he wants to inherit everlasting life uh he mentions romans six thirteen. the problem is in the main of the people but not in the flesh the people put his or his or her flesh to disposition of his or her bad wishes so uh remember our brother Nestor speaks Spanish in his native tongue, but he's pretty good in English, but there's a couple sentences there that I didn't quite catch the way he had it constructed. But Nestor, we love hearing from you, brother, and appreciate your good comments there on homosexuality. Gracias, Nestor, and good to hear from you tonight. All right, uh, numerous points we could point out. First Corinthians chapter 6 that was mentioned is a, a crucial one, Nick, because it tells us not only is homosexuality wrong, but that it can be forgiven. And uh, it can be, we can change if uh, we have been engaged in that practice in the past. Yeah, we need to use the term love and say that we love those who are involved in homosexuality and they need to come out of that. And uh, the Bible teaches, uh, you know, even even if we were to grant that they were born uh, that way or, or they were uh, brought into this world and that be, be a desire that they have and a craving that had been created within them. God is saying to avoid fornication, and it's listed right in with fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and uh, we're not to involve us, ourselves no in No one that. says I was a born fornicator. I just can't, I can't help my, uh, my fornicating. It's just the way that I am. No one says that. Why would they say the same about homosexuality? Well, uh, I think that's a good argument. The argument is God made me that way. Well, I don't believe that, but even if he did, the Bible still says you can't practice it. You know, and 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 homosexuals are not the only ones who have to control their sexual passions. Uh, heterosexuals have to com- control their sexual passions as well. God God's given a legitimate means for fulfilling those needs, but he he hasn't just given us carte blanche to do as we please. And so, I I really think that you know I, I, we could engage in a long argument as to whether homosexuals are born that way or not. I don't think they are. I think the Bible would indicate they are not. But bottom line, even if they were made that way, you can't practice that sin. You know, an alcoholic says you know th- th- there's this argument that alcoholics have a, an inherited tendency toward dependence on alcohol. I don't know if that's so or not. It really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is you can't drink alcohol. You can't be a drunk. The man who has a, a, a hot temper, there may be indications he was born with that hot temper. He has to control it. And just as with any of these temptations, just because we may be tempted in a certain area doesn't make us that way until we practice the act. And there's, if someone is tempted with a homosexual temptation, you're not homosexual. You don't need to give in to that. You need to resist it just like the, the person who might be tempted to be an alcoholic should resist that temptation, and we would encourage uh, those who are uh, to do that. Yeah, the homosexuals would need to have a verse such as Matthew 19.4 where our Lord actually did address something about homosexuality without explicitly stating it. Uh, he says that, have you not read from the beginning that God made them male and female? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. And then again, as we read 1 Corinthians 7, 2, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Why don't we have a verse that says, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own man or every woman her own woman. That's what they're saying. As long as it's monogamous, it's okay. The the Bible doesn't say that. You know, uh, Nick, there, that verse in Matthew 19, verse 4, God made them. That you know, God made it. So read it again. God made them male and female. In other words, God made them so that 
your desire would be to the opposite sex. That's how God made you. That's yeah. how God made us. He didn't make yeah. us homosexuals. I believe that's exactly right. How the, the just the natural uh, uh, desires that we would have, as you've mentioned, would have to be under control with heterosexuals. You know, uh, we mentioned First Corinthians six. Homosexuality was was very prevalent in Corinth in the first century. It was a, a pagan city given over to idolatrous worship, and history tells us that homosexuality was commonly practiced paul said that he lists a whole bunch of sins among them homosexuals and he said such were some of you they had changed they came out of that you can come out of that all right let's take a break when we get back we've got two more questions to go one that we started the program with did do the events of acts chapter 20 verses 6 to 11 prove that social gatherings and common meals were a regular part of the activities of first century churches and then we have a question in the chat room tonight should christians be involved in the military and in the police force. So you can join in on that question. That's the one Nick's going to answer. <laughs> All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. The virtual Bible study goes to the top of the hour right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hi, I'm Anthony Petrochko, a member of the College View Church of Christ. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. We want to remind you that our website, www.collegeview.com or www.thevirtualbiblestudy.com, has lots of valuable study tools available for your use. First, you can find archives of all our past programs there. We've covered a wide variety of topics, including doctrinal issues, moral and ethical questions, and many things related to living daily as a Christian. And while we don't have a search engine option on our website, Website, remember that you can hit Control F and type in a keyword. You'll then see that keyword highlighted on the page. For instance, if you hit Control F and typed in the word worship, you'd find these past programs that we've conducted. Does it matter how we worship? What about contemporary worship and hand clapping? Are worship pleasing to God or pleasing to man? And instrumental music in worship. That's just an example, but you get the idea as to how the web page can be used to help in your study of various subjects. Also remember that we have copies of our church bulletin on the website, and these bulletins include articles on hundreds of topics. You'll also find some recorded sermons, some Bible tracts, as well as information about the College View Church. So be sure to check out the valuable resources on our website. Again, the address is collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And thanks again for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Be sure to tell others. My name is Roger Toomes, and me and my wife love to listen to the Virtual Bible Study on Thursday nights. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. Lots of ground to cover. We hope you'll join in with your phone calls or with your emails tonight. Jacob, let me read one more email on the homosexual question before we pass from it. Mike in Columbia says, while it is a fact that the Bible shows that homosexuality is a sin, do you think as Christians we need to be careful as to how we conduct ourselves and what we say about it? I'm not talking about condoning it, but as the football coach used the term in a derogatory manner that might not be the best way to act since it might not allow us to be able to try and teach them what is the truth. I want to be clear. I'm not uh, I'm not saying condone it. However, we've seen people with protest signs using derogatory terms toward homosexuals and losing their souls in hell. And while that is true, should we consider what is the best way to teach them and what might not be the best way to teach them? I, I, I agree with you, Mike. Yeah, I mean, when we, when we were, if we if were trying to teach a prostitute, we wouldn't use some of the slang uh, terms that are referring that people use to refer to prostitutes by. We would want to do that in a loving manner. I think Mike makes an excellent point. Yeah, we got to be careful and present ourselves uh, uh, 
in, in a proper manner to, that would not diminish our influence. But but I think I think we we also want to make it clear that there's there's no toleration in the scripture for this at all. I mean, uh, it seems to me like our culture has gone way overboard the other direction to try and be all accommodating to the homosexuals. We're not going to use slang or derogatory terms. We're not going to be harsh or mean or mean spirited or unloving. But by the same token, we not don't want gonna, to leave not going to condone. No, we don't want to leave any indication that we're that we're condoning that practice at all. All right. Next question. Did you have something to add, Nick? Okay, next question. Do the events of Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 11, prove that social gatherings and common meals were a regular part of the activities of first century churches? What about uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 11? Do they show uh, that churches were engaged in providing common meals and uh, social gatherings? Well... Uh, real quickly, we're going to run out of time on this pretty quick. Jay, we may have to take that military question another time, but here's the here's the text, Acts 20, verse 6. We've already got them warmed up for the military question, though, so, well, okay, we'll try. Uh, Paul, it says, we, uh, this is talking about Paul's final missionary journey in Acts 20, verse 6. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. And continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen to a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. In that text, uh, Jacob and Nick, there's two. There's clearly two references to breaking bread. One, I believe, has to do with a common meal. That expression can mean the taking of a common meal. It's used that way in Acts chapter two, verse forty-six. But that expression, breaking bread, can also mean the Lord's Supper. It's used that way in Acts two, forty-two, First Corinthians ten, sixteen, First Corinthians eleven, twenty-three through twenty-six. Now, here in Acts twenty. The first reference is to the Lord's Supper. We reach this conclusion because Paul waited in the city of Troas for seven days in order to be present at that assembly. Why would he wait that specific number of days if it were a common meal that could have been eaten on any day of the week? And the disciples had specifically come together for that reason of breaking bread. But here's what's interesting. Paul had condemned. The book of 1 Corinthians had already been written at this point. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, and also verse 34 especially, Paul had specifically condemned the church coming together to eat common meals. Now, that, that epistle had already been written. 1 Corinthians had already been written. And in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, Paul had condemned churches coming together for such a purpose. Now, if the church at Troas had come together for the purpose of eating a common meal, and Paul participated with them in that, he was going against his own teaching on that matter which just simply wouldn't have been the case. And so that first reference, the church coming together to break bread, is a reference to them coming together on the first day of the week to participate in the Lord, to eating the Lord's Supper. The second eating or breaking of bread, remember Eutychus fell out of the window at, uh, after midnight. Paul raised him from the dead. They continued to talk a long time, and toward daybreak, Paul ate something. He broke some bread. I believe that second breaking of bread was eating some common food, by any manner of timekeeping, that would have been on Monday. It wouldn't have been on Sunday. It wouldn't have been the first day of the week. Either by Jewish or Roman timekeeping methods, that could not have been a first day of the week thing. And so there where it mentions breaking the bread, 
he ate some common meals. But remember, churches most often met in the homes of private individuals. There would have been common foodstuffs available. Uh, eating of that nature took place in that home every day of the week. This was not part of the church meeting. This was not coming together for this purpose. It wasn't a part of the work of the church. Acts 20 doesn't teach that the church in Troas in the first century engaged as a church activity in the eating of common meals. We should clarify that we have no problem with Christians eating together. In fact, I would believe that we're commanded to do so. And we have no problem with the whole church eating together. If we had a a get-together where the whole church was present, no problem there. But Paul tells us that we need to be careful. We, In fact, he condemns church-sponsored activities, a, a function of the church, where the, it is, is a work of the church doing that. We don't have authority for it in the New Testament. And uh, so we say that we need to be careful about that. I, I understand that if the church is facilitating the meal, Paul says, eat at home. And, and, and the distinction between eat at home wouldn't forbid going to a restaurant or anything. It's just showing that the function of the church and the function of the home uh, has two different purposes there as far as uh, those hungry. He said some of you are hungry. Uh, if I remember the correct uh, way they put it, uh, others are drunk and not, not necessarily intoxicated as we might think of it today. But uh, he's showing that there were some who had, some who had not. He says the way you're going to correct that for the filling of the belly is to eat at home. Right. And, and the purpose that these disciples came together, as you pointed out in Acts 27, it had purpose to it for the church to actually assemble together, come together for that purpose of breaking bread. It's interesting that you said that, that there was a problem there in 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul's remedy for it wasn't, well, you just need to make sure that everybody has enough on their plate. His remedy was for you eat at home. It's not a work of the church. Key verse there is 1 Corinthians 11:34. He, he specifically tells them if you're hungry, eat at home. Don't be coming together unto condemnation. So uh, that that's just a powerful verse. It, it really answers the question. A couple of emails, Jacob. Randy in Jackson, Missouri says, having social activities in the name of the church doesn't bother me that much. I don't see a problem with a church potluck supper. Well, depends on how the potluck supper is being organized. We, we have potluck suppers, too, but it's not a function of the church. In fact, we don't even announce them uh, at, the, at the services. But individuals gather for that purpose quite often, and we like doing it. That's, but he says he goes on and says, I do think it's wrong using money that was supposedly given to the Lord to entertain and feed ourselves. And I certainly agree with that. And then Anthony has a, a longer comment about this. Uh, he, he says, I don't think that particular passage, Acts 20, that we were asked about, has much to do with congregational meals. The phrase breaking bread can either mean the Lord's Supper or it can mean a meal. In verse 7, the context would indicate that it refers to the Lord's Supper. In verse 11, it could mean that Eutychus simply had some some food uh, to regain his strength. It was actually Paul who, in verse 11, 8, uh, from this verse, it is clear to me that, that only Eutychus was eating. No, I think it's, I would think, just clarification, I think it was Paul who was eating in verse 11. Doesn't, as he, uh, Anthony goes on to say, it doesn't seem that the whole group was eating. I know most of your listeners will not agree with me, but I do think the New Testament, we have a composite picture that points to primitive Christians as congregations partaking of common meals. He says the best evidence for this, ironically, is 1 Corinthians 11. I would ask everyone this question. If the Corinthian brethren were not guilty of divisions, verse 18, and heresies, verse 19, would Paul have called attention to their common meal at all? No, he says. The issue is not that they were eating together as a congregation. The issue was that they were factious uh, evidently during this meal, wealthier brethren showing complete contempt and disdain for poorer brethren not sharing their food 
being puffed up so that the approved may be manifest, verse 19. If it weren't for the sinful attitudes of the brethren in Corinth, Paul would not have called them out. He is not calling them out for eating. He's calling them out for reasons specified in verses 18 and 19. Well, he goes on here. I'll continue to read. But I would disagree with that conclusion. Certainly there were abuses there that he was condemning and rebuking. But the end of it is very plain. If any man hungers, let him eat at home. We're not coming together for the purpose of satisfying our our physical appetites. That's the principle laid down. It's laid down in conjunction with addressing their abuses of the Lord's Supper, but it is still a principle that's laid down. Uh, so where in the text does it say, if you have a right attitude and if you if everybody's willing to share equally and commonly, and if you're not going to abuse these common meals, go ahead and have it. It doesn't say that. What it says is the rule is, and it's a rule they've been violating in several ways, but the rule is do your eating of common meals as a, as a, as a function of the home and individuals, not as a function of your coming together as the church. That's the way that passage reads. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, when he says, don't you have houses to eat? And he is employing a rhetorical question purely for emphasis. He is saying, if this is going to be how you treat each other, then you'd better eat at home. What is, uh, what is it that we say to our children? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. This is exactly the logic Paul is using. If you can't eat together respectfully and peacefully, then don't eat at all. Also, it doesn't make sense for Paul to be condemning eating in the church house because many early churches met in people's homes. So if Paul literally meant let him eat at home, he would be in a sort of pickle when it came to congregations that met in people's homes. Stopping again, just a comment. The the question here is not whether or not a morsel of food is consumed within the confines of the assembly place. Uh, We don't meet in common homes, but... I have an office here in the church building, and I frequently eat a morsel of food in my in my sitting at my desk in the office. We don't have an objection to consuming a morsel of food in the confines of this physical property. The question is: Is the church key key phrase there is come together? Is the church coming together for such a purpose? And they're coming together is what Paul said. Don't do. He said you're supposed to be coming together to observe the Lord's Supper. You've been coming together for these common meals. Don't do that. Eat, eat the common meals at home. That's that's what's said. Uh, uh, we talk about this passage being a, an unapproved example for congregational meals, but I do not agree. It's an uh, unapproved example of division, pride, clique, strife, general lack of brother love. Also, if Christians were not regularly eating common meals, then why would Paul specifically command us not to eat with wayward brethren? Interestingly enough, in the same epistle, Paul commands the Corinthians not to eat with a brother who's a fornicator, covetous, idolater, and so on. They were not to keep company with these brethren. They were not even to eat with them. Seems to place significant importance on eating together. We do. We agree. We should eat. We we, we should socialize together. First Corinthians uh, five. There, when he says don't eat together, he's saying don't keep social company with, with the withdrawn from brother. He says, uh, don't we as humans put great emphasis on eating together? What we do, flesh and blood families do on holiday. What do flesh and blood families do on holidays? They eat together. This is an age-old rite of fellowship and love. I'm especially concerned when I hear brethren characterize congregational meals as some kind of unthinkable orgy, and those who would do it as just the basest sort of folks imaginable. This couldn't be further from the truth. Just look at our own family meals or even potlucks. They are no different. I know these sentiments are controversial. I do not want to say that I am ready to stake my claim to the position that churches can sponsor common meals. But I think the arguments just expressed certainly support the notion. Well, I want to be clear, and Jacob, you mentioned this. We're not saying that Christians shouldn't come together and enjoy their social 
fellowship, social company. I won't use the word fellowship there, but use social, uh, enjoy one another's social company. I think the Bible encourages that. The, the the question is whether it is authorized for the church to sponsor and provide for such activity. There are two realms. And First Corinthians, the reason why we cite 1 Corinthians 11 is it's most clearly stated there. There are two realms. There's what the church does when it comes together as an assembled body. And there's what we do as individuals in our homes and with our families and friends. And and so let the church be about its business. And and certainly let's enjoy one another's social company. It's it's beneficial. It's profitable. And commanded. But it, it should be in its, its own proper place. Okay. Nick, quickly, we got, we're got we out of time. Anything? Yeah, I would just uh, ask one to look at verse 22. What have you houses to not what have you not houses to eat and drink in? Uh, you know, Paul is talking to people that are meeting there in, in, a, in a wrong way, and he said you're eating your own supper. And uh, he even mentions houses, and then in the same verse he uses despise ye the church of God. So even though they may uh, have been meeting in a house, uh, he's saying that the assembling of the church together as the church functioning as the church in that house would be a matter of despising the church of God to eat. So you're going to eat it in a in a home function, yeah, as a home function, right. a common meal. That is, I think you're right. Again, the question is not can we eat within the confines of the church building. The question is, can the church provide for such eating? And First Corinthians 11 says, don't do it. And if if First Corinthians 11 is just condemning the abuse then the church at Corinth could go ahead and continue to have their church-sponsored meals, even though in verse 34, Paul said, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home. Paul commanded them to eat at home. But if, we, if we're just taking the interpreting 1 Corinthians 11 to be condemning the abuse, then the church at Corinth could continue to, to eat together as a, as a function of the church. I and think, it seems to be that would be ignoring what Paul said there. Yeah, he didn't say change your attitude and you can keep it up. He said just stop doing it. And if it was just if, if the problem was only their attitude, and I agree with Anthony that their attitude was bad. There's just no doubt about that. But if it was only attitude that was being addressed here, he would say, clean up your attitudes uh, and and then you can keep having your common meals. As uh, He didn't say that. He said, if any man hungers, let him eat at home. Let's reiterate one more time. We think Christians can eat together. We think Christians should eat together. And it is no problem for Christians to eat together but it is a function of, of the individual and the home. Right. And we, we might invite every single member, and this often happens, we might invite every single member to come to a certain place uh, as, as, as a private social gathering where we enjoy eating together. But it's, the church isn't functioning it, supporting it, sponsoring it, providing for it. It's done in the realm of individual or family activity, not as a church activity. Right. Acts 20 and 7 points out the, there's what the purpose is. Is really important. They came together to break bread, and that's what during that time, that's what we need to be doing for the Lord's Supper. Exactly right. 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 We could continue this discussion uh, in the future, and hopefully, we will. And we do have that other and, question. And we didn't get to that. Other. I didn't think we would. We didn't get. We'll, we'll put that right. in the mix for our next. That could be a whole program. Program. All right. We appreciate your time tonight. Uh, thank you, Dad, for the program. Thanks, Jacob. And Nick, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for being out there tonight. We hope you benefited from our discussion. If you have any questions or comments about the things that we've said so far. We would like to hear from you. Let us know anytime. Send us an email or give us a phone call. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word in the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.